Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. For making me feel so welcome. I feel like a part of your family and my family feels like a part of your family. And so it was sort of just, uh, you know, just kind of one of those, there's no special occasion other than, um, you know, uh, we, we just wanted to worship together. And uh, sometimes when you're in ministry, you guys know this, it's like the one thing you can't do is like come to church as a family and, you know, sit together and worship the Lord. And so um, uh, City on a Hill kind of allows us to do that in some way, right? You can come on Sunday. You know, my kids are going to Kidmo. Like it's half of Kidmo, I think is a Richter kid. <laughs> um, but thank you all. If I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, if you're new to City on a Hill, welcome. You're at a good place. If you haven't picked up on that, you're at a good place. And I'm glad you're here. And you're at the right place. You could have been doing a lot of things on a sunny fall morning in November, but you chose to be in the house of the Lord. And I want to say welcome to you. And I want to encourage you also to come back. Uh, it, it takes time to plug into a church. It's not easy. It's just, it's just not. Because a lot of times you'll go somewhere for the first time, and the people on your row, you'll, you'll get done with the service and go, well, they, 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 they were maybe standoffish, or they didn't say hi to what you don't realize is, it might be their first time too. And they're looking at you going, well, I don't know, these people, you know, right? You don't know. You don't know what people are coming in here with. You don't know what people are struggling with. But so, so, so stay after it, you know. G- give it another chance. Keep, keep coming. I'll tell you this. Seek and ye shall find. I believe that's true. Get your questions answered. If you say, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I'm just checking this place out. Cont- we're glad you're here. And I hope that what we're talking about is going to be relevant to you. I, I, I can guarantee, whether or not it feels relevant, I can guarantee it's going to be important. We had an important weekend. Pastor Linda and, and Pastor Joe have already mentioned that. We're going to talk about something important. I'm beginning a, a little mini-series here, uh, by God's grace. I'll be back with you again next Sunday, talking through a series on the, Paul's letter to Timothy. It's called First Timothy. So if you have a Bible, open it up. It's toward the back. It's in the New Testament, and it's called First Timothy. And I have for you put the verses up here on the screen so that if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. Uh, 20 years ago, we told everybody, turn in your Bibles. Now we tell people, turn on your Bibles. If you've got the Bible on an app or a phone or whatever works. But we'll all be there together in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. I'll give you a little bit of background before we jump right in. Jesus... You think of Jesus being born right around zero, right? It's very convenient, right? There's B.C. and A.D., the birth of Jesus Christ. God becoming a little baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, splits history in half, okay? So if Jesus, uh, uh, and I guess technical footnote here, maybe a few years you know, before or after, depending on when you start counting, but uh, Jesus ministers then, and he's crucified, dead, buried, resurrected somewhere around 33 A.D., right? And so this uh, uh, nascent group of Jewish believers begin following Jesus. There is one man we're going to talk about who writes this letter. His name is Saul, and he is a, a, a Jewish persecutor of this. They can't really figure out what these Christians are. Because they're like Jews, but they claim Jesus was their Messiah. And they claim that Jesus was equal to God, and that's blasphemous. And so they're like this Jewish cult, Saul thinks. And so Saul goes out to persecute him until, and we'll talk about his testimony today, until he himself is convinced that Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah. And Saul becomes Paul, and he begins to be a church planter. He goes on these missionary trips, plants all these churches. He plants one church in Ephesus, and he mentors this young guy. He goes off, and he leaves Timothy there at the church at Ephesus. It's a good church, it's growing, but Paul has to go off. He gets to Rome, he's thrown in jail, he gets out of jail for a little while, goes back to jail, in between, while he, in between his stints in the slammer, he does some more missionary ministry work, and it's right then that he fires off this letter to First Timothy, and uh, paid all the postage himself, but m- got that, this letter to uh, uh, First Timothy, so this would have been sometime around 62 AD. I only give you all that history for this reason. 2,000 years later, we look back in the New Testament and we're like, yeah, these guys were kind of concocting this story and you can kind of see how the Bible was contrived. This wasn't 2,000 years later. This was 29 years later after the resurrection. That's why a lot of the writing is more like this. Not, here's an apologetic for why you should believe this stuff. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't believe me, there, many of these folks are still alive. Just go ask some of the 500 eyewitnesses. Just go ask, just go ask Joey or Bob. 
Harry, Susie, go ask them. It's written like, if you don't believe this stuff, this is 29 years ago. Like, you guys, are, you, guys, you guys remember Jesus risen from the dead. Yeah, that changes everything. Well, here's why it changes. And they're already off presuming, we're all agreed that Jesus is risen from the dead. This fact so overwhelmed Saul. He's writing to Timothy. He left him there in Ephesus. One thing that happened when he left, though, he kind of he predicted his shot. Like an apostolic babe Ruth calling what was going to happen next. He says to Timothy, listen, when I leave here, there's going to be these wackos that come in here, okay? And they're going to try to get everybody distracted. Instead of focusing on the Gospels, they're going to try to get them to, if you will, major on the minors. They're going to come in here and they're going to tell you all this fancy stuff about the the genealogy of Old Testament characters. And they're going to get everybody, instead of focusing on the Gospel, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, they're going to say, did you know Noah's father Lamech was probably a great man? And here, here's an entire mythology, of, an entire etymology about, you know, Shem and Ham and Japheth and all these people. And let's, and, oh, and then let's fight out whether, no, I think Lamech was a better person. No, I think Enoch and all this stuff. He's like, and Paul said, that's what's going to happen. That's exactly what happens. And so when Paul fires off this letter to Timothy, he's like, stay there. I know you're young, but you've got to stay there and you've got to keep people on what is so important. He starts the letter by saying, Paul, and, uh, like when we write letters, we're like, dear so-and-so, and then at the end, sincerely, Tom. They do it the other way around. They start with who's sending it. So he starts with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy. My true child in the faith. That also, not for nothing, that helps the young minister, Timothy, who's trying to, he's trying to make it with a bunch of intimidating, you know, other people. And uh, on top of that, he came from a, his parents had a mixed marriage in terms of religion, right? One was Jewish, one was not. And so they were like, Timothy, you know, I don't even know if we should listen to this guy. After all, he's not like a true follower of Jesus because he's not truly Jewish. So to hear Paul the Pharisee of Pharisees. Nobody questions Paul pedigree. For Paul to go, he's my true son in the faith. It's like, I don't want to hear any more talk about this guy's not legit, right? So it's kind of like a great way to help out this guy. And it's true because he says, he, that's Paul's ministry. It's not about your ethnic identity. It's about being your, having your identity in the Messiah, Jesus. So he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he jumps right in. As I urge, this is the point, of the point of the letter, and so he jumps right in, we're going to jump right in. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, right? Like, I, I predicted this. <laughs> Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He's saying that this is what I'm starting the letter with. This is what I'm urging you. You got a bunch of people who are devoting so much time on the wrong stuff and they're messing up doctrine. And so his theme in this letter is to guard the deposit of proper doctrine. And that means the theme of today's sermon is doctrine. I know, right? Yawn. Like, what a snooze fest. Like, are you kidding me? Some of you are like, I'm missing football. To come to this church, and this guy's telling me he's going to preach a sermon on doctrine? I can, think of, I can think of nothing more boring than doctrine. On a more serious note, you're going you're gonna to talk in this, in this worship gathering. You're going to talk about the tragedy in France, and this guy's getting up here and hitting us with Doctrine? Come on, like not only is it irrelevant, it's unimportant. Nobody, I, I sincerely doubt, nobody came in here and thought, I've got, everybody came in here and you had some sort of need. But nobody came in here and thought your deepest need was, I've got to get my doctrine properly aligned with the New Testament. You came in here, you thought, I need to be refreshed in my spirit. Okay? When you came in here, you thought perhaps, I need to have my heart cleaned out, right? Maybe as you were driving the minivan, that is a traveling circus, you're looking back there going, I know exactly why I'm coming to church today. i got to get these yokels straightened out, right? And I need some reinforcements, and I don't care what they do in kid mode, just get them brought back correctly, right? I need my heart cleaned out. I need to be, or maybe you're here and you're like, you know, honestly, I had kind of a wild weekend. I need to go to church 
today, and I am still hungover. I, you know, I don't know what you're, you know, I need my conscience cleaned out. I need forgiveness. I need, I'm in trouble. I need a financial blessing. I need, I, you know, I've got these needs. Nobody came in here and said what I need is doctrine. And I'm telling you, behind all that need, that's exactly what your need is. That is exactly, doctrine is your heart's way of explaining reality. That's what doctrine is. Doctrine is your heart's way of explaining reality. And in that sense, you all do it. You all have a way of filtering what you see on the news and explaining it. That means all of us are theologians. Everybody has some doctrine and it floats into every other area of your life. What you believe about God or don't believe about God. What you believe about these other humans. What you believe about our enemies, ISIS. What you believe about the... All of this stuff comes from what? It comes from doctrine. It doesn't come out of anywhere. It comes from a worldview. Everything you're reading in this paper, everything you're getting from Fox News, everything you're getting from MSNBC, everything you're getting from Google News and all this stuff, it all is driven out of somebody's doctrine. And you have it too and I do too. And to get that right... That would, change the, that would change everything. That would begin to meet all those needs in your life. At the risk of belaboring this simple point, imagine you're a doctor. Or for those of you who are in fact doctors, you are a doctor. You don't need to imagine. Uh, for the rest of us, imagine you're a doctor. And a patient comes to you and says, well, I've got, uh, I've got uh, uh, fatigue all the time and I need a pill for that. And I've got high blood pressure. I can feel it. I'm about to explode. I, I, I need a pill for that. And I've got cholesterol all the time. I need a pill for that. And my blood sugar's off the charts. And I need a pill for that. I've always got headaches. And I need a pill for that. And I've got the gout. And I need a pill for that. If it would have the amputation, I'm not, whatever. I need, I, need, I need a pill for that. And uh, on top of all that, I'm, I'm always uh, uh, stressed. And I need a pill for that. You would, you, before you start immediately prescribing all these things that treat symptoms, you would say, well, let's examine maybe the, you would at least ask a few questions, right? Just the, just beginning to scratch this. Yeah, well, tell me about your diet. Oh, I'm glad you asked. I eat uh, Twinkies and Mountain Dew every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sometimes separately, sometimes in a stew. I make like a curry out of Twinkies and Mountain Dew. You would say, look, I'm not here to hate on Twinkies and Mountain Dew, but uh, like, you know, we could treat all these symptoms, but it seems to me the food you're putting in your body every day, what you're consuming, it seems to me is filtering out and manifesting itself in all these symptoms. Everybody in here would get that. You would say, well, well, let's start, before we treat these symptoms, let's start with getting some wholesome food and see how that makes its way out into all the little cells in your body, right? And see if that doesn't begin to uh, clear these things up. Everybody gets that. But we miss it sometimes when it comes to a word like doctrine, not realizing that that is the exact same thing. The doctrine bleeds itself out. And so that's why you desperately need the right doctrine. And if you're a note taker, you can write these things down. You can write down point, I'll give you three points to write down. Normally I'm not this organized. It's sort of a Jackson Pollock sermon. Good luck, write stuff down if you can. Draw a picture. Here, I'll give you three points you can hang your hat on. Number one, I need good doctrine. I hope I'm beginning to illustrate that, and I want to show you why you desperately need good doctrine from the Word of God. This is point number one. I need good doctrine. Here it is. That's what, so, okay. Bad doctrine leads to a bunch of speculation. In chapter six, we won't look at it now, but it basically leads to, watch this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, this is what Paul says just a few pages later, and doesn't agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he gets puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. This person will have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander. You ever watch those pharmaceutical commercials and they're always like, this will heal your problem. Then after that, they tell you like all the side effects and you're like, what? I'll just keep my depression. Thank you very much. You know, they're like, will it cause death, suicidal thoughts, hemorrhaging. And you're like, what in the world? That's what Paul's saying. If you get the wrong doctrine, Dissension, slander, evil suspicions, envy, constant friction. Don't try bad doctrine without first consulting your pastor, right? And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, depraved of truth. That's what wrong doctrine will do. It will. It has to. It has to. The, if the well is poisoned, your life is just what's downstream from that. I mean, your, your life is just the overflow of that. And I realize I'm mixed metaphors, but you get what I mean. Here, here's what good doctrine can do. Watch. The aim of our charge, on the other hand, what we're teaching is love. 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Could there be a simpler reminder of what we're all about this morning? In the midst of violence and hatred in the world, the point is, when we walk out of here, it's not that we know more Bible facts. The point, the goal, is love. It's love. Love. And not just any love. Not just any love, but notice. I, Paul is not, and I'm not trying to create, and the Lechis aren't trying to create, a church that could, like, dominate the world in Bible jeopardy. That, <laughs> yeah. It's my kid. She's like, but that's what you told me, Dad. I'll take Ecclesiastes for 300, please, Alex. This one goes to the Lechis. I'm a tithe on this winnings, yo. Like that, this is not the ultimate goal. We want you to have Bible, and by the way, you know why we want you to have Bible facts? You know why we want you to have Bible knowledge? Because if you know one fact more about God, I guarantee you will love Him one fact more. Because the more you know about me, but the more you know about God, the more you're going to love Him. To know Him more is to love Him more because everything about Him is good and everything about Him is beautiful and everything about Him makes you want to love Him more. That's the only reason knowledge is so important. And he says, and this is what we're going for. The aim of our charge is love. And this is what I love. Not just any love. This is what you want. It's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is so important. It issues from a pure heart i cannot stress the importance of it this is what you want it's you want a kind of love that you don't have to like try so hard that one didn't work you want a kind of love that you don't have to think about uh i thought of ways to illustrate this because it's a little subtle so i'll do my best i hope this works i think 90 percent of our day is completely subconscious and 10% is the stuff we actually think about, we go over it, we write it out, we analyze it, and then we say it to our coworker. Nobody does that, right? That's maybe 10% of our day. 90% of our day is just reactionary. It's off the cuff, it's, right? If we taped, and you got to watch 24, we had a, like a secret tape recorder and a film view, like your own reality show, one year ago today, November 15, 2014, and we played the tape back, and you just got some popcorn and watched 24 hours of your day, Skip the boring, you know, skip the sleeping and all that. But, but, but like, the way you interacted, you know what would be funny? So much of you would be like, I don't remember saying that. I certainly didn't mean to say that. I did not plan to say that. That came out wrong. Why? Because none of it was like, I thought about what I was going to say. I analyzed it. I had some of my closest friends read it. And then I sent that email. Then I sent that text. No, you just react. It's life off the cuff. It's impromptu. We're all making this stuff up as we go along. And Jesus says this. Out of the, do you know this? Finish this if you know it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in here just comes out. So we could do an impossible job where every single day we guard everything we do. Every minute of every day, guard your lips, guard your mouth. Think about what you're going to do. Why won't you think before you talk? You should think. Stop, man, with the brain in neutral, mouth in drive. Stop. Think before you talk. If you will just stop and think in every way, you'll have better reactions. We could do that, which is impossible. Or we could get our heart right and trust that what we speak is coming out of a good heart. Wouldn't that be so much? Doesn't that make so much more common sense? People who say, why can't I just think before I talk? Why can't I think before I talk? I always want to go, that's the point. You can't. You can't change that. 90%, when you walk out of here, you can hear the greatest sermon in the world. 90% of your life will still be subconscious. So what you want to do is have the kind of subconsciousness that you can actually trust. You want love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. None of you live consciously. Breathe. Good. Breathe again. Good, good. Heartbeat, good. Yep, blood pumping, terrific. Breathe. Right? If you had to think about everything you did consciously, you would die in 30 seconds because you couldn't constantly be like, oh, don't, oh, beat, yep, be, oh, forgot you, ventricle, mitochondria. Ah, right. It's not going to happen. With that in mind, Paul's saying, what, oh, what you want then is something that can begin to work in your heart. That's good doctrine. We'll do that. It issues from a pure heart, a good, co- a good conscience, good conscience. The reason you're not going to tell a lie tomorrow is not because you're going to be extra vigilant and guarded against lying. The reason you're not going to tell a lie tomorrow is because you have a good conscience. 
and you can sort of trust yourself that you're a truthful person, right? The reason, you know, you, you can fake sincere faith. You can fake faith for a couple hours or a couple days. But it's hard to fake over a long period of time. Eventually that stuff comes out. And the people who know you most, the people who know you best, they know. They know. And your coworker, that's the problem. Your coworker comes to you with questions and he doesn't say, hey, will you go and take like four weeks to study this Bible passage and tell me what this means? What they want to know is, hey, what do you think about? And that's the thing, that kind of readiness, that kind of sincere faith, not just knowledge, but that it flows. That's why you desperately need the right message. Point two, I hope you could have guessed. You desperately need the right message. You desperately need the right doctrine. Point number two, so what is the right message what is the right doctrine i've tried to build this thing up right where it's like you desperately need this right doctrine well what is it i mean have i sufficiently baited you into wondering oh we don't care Uh, i hope you i hope i've like got you on the edge of your seat if you desperately need the right message what is it well I can tell you what it's not. I'll tell you what it's not. And this is a bit caricatured, but in some ways it's really not. You know people like this. Here's what the right message is not. The right message the world desperately needs to hear is not imagine there's no heaven, no hell. Imagine a world of peace. It's not, it's not let it go. (laughs) The things that make for peace isn't that amazing? Jackie and I went to Disney World recently. She um, convinced me. I'd never been. She was like, you are a neglected human. Like, how do you, you know. But uh, remember this? And uh, we go to Disney World. And we go into something called the Frozen Sing-Along. Oh, okay. So you've been there. If you haven't, you immediately know what it is. And I'm looking around. Now, ponder this. I'm looking around. And I go into a room about this size where there are seats about like this. There are people. They don't call them ushers, but they tell you, go all the way to the end. We fill it in. And then on a huge screen, and I'm not making this up, with a computer AV booth in the back, they're projecting words, and a a whole bunch of people are singing with hands raised, let it go, let it go. And I'm looking at Jackie going... I've seen this somewhere before. point is simple the world's gonna sing a song we just gotta give them better lyrics can't we do better the message the absolute best and I'm not hating I'm not the absolute best like you said that guy was trying to be a blessing so I'll take more of that you know what I mean bring a piano to the street not a gun so I'm on I'm with you I'm not hating but man like what a missed moment the, 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 the message that the world needs to hear, the right doctrine, is not, I'm okay, you're okay. We're all okay. If there's a God, we just, He doesn't care about sin. He doesn't care about these things. He's not a God of wrath and judgment and holiness. He just wants us all to get along. That's the absolute best message a secular humanist can do. Don't be a jerk to each other, guys. Really. And just and I'm I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet this and I'm gonna get on social media and this is what I love people are actually saying just for the record I am against this kind of evil I'm always like you think like who's not every politician that can possibly get a Twitter out is saying hey just for the record everybody know I'm totally against that we're all against that but you are kidding yourself if you think the solution to all that is. I'm okay, you're okay, we can fix this through better education, we can fix this through better policies, right? I think we're hopelessly broken and wrecked, and we need a rescuer, right? That's a totally different lyric, it's a totally different message. So that's one message that it's not. The other message is, the flip side of that would be more for those of us perhaps who are in this room, and the flip side of that message is, yeah, yeah, Tom's right, God is holy, and these sinners out here in Long Island better get their life together. And you clean, your, you clean your act up. And if you get clean enough and come to church enough and learn enough Bible verses, then maybe, just maybe, you can save yourself by the skin of your teeth. Right? That's also the wrong message. That's not a rescue. That's a self-rescue. That's climbing into God's ark yourself and fighting past Noah and getting on, right? That's not, that's, that's self-salvation, you know? 
Don't you see the problem with these messages? These are the messages being offered. One, the, um, the we don't need salvation, sin should be excused, is hopelessly naive. And they cannot deal with what happened this weekend. They cannot. They cannot. That's why churches are full. The new, I'm not getting an answer for why there's radical evil. Do you have an answer? They come to church, they go, well, there's an answer. And then they have to decide whether or not they like the answer. But the Bible goes, I've got an answer for you. Better believe I can explain the 6 o'clock news. It's not naive. Hopelessly naive. The other, God is so holy and you better save yourself. The religious, we'll call it, means of self-salvation. That is just going to lead to pride and envy. Don't you see why? If I'm trying to save myself, I'm going to be full of pride and look down at those heathen sinners that can't do what I can do. And I'm going to look with envy at these saints that are better than me. And that's all I'm going to be filled with is pride and envy. Pride and envy. A cycle of pride and envy focused ultimately on self. So if the right message is not, I'm okay, you're okay, the excusing of sin. And if the right message is, yeah, I don't excuse sin at all. Sin is going to destroy your life unless you save yourself. If that's not the right message, then which is it? The right message, you know. You know. Many, so many of you remember the day when this clicked. The right message is the gospel. A good God created a good world. Adam and Eve were created good. They lived in harmony with God, harmony with each other. Humans made a choice. For two glorious chapters, we got to enjoy harmony with God and harmony with others. Humans made a choice. Something alien, something foreign from the world came in called sin. Something not part of God's good creation. And when humans made a choice to rebel against God, we don't want you to be God. We don't want you. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own lords. And the one commandment you gave was to not eat this fruit. To prove that, we'll eat this fruit. See? We don't trust you. We want to be our own gods. The Bible calls this twisting inward and becoming selfish. Calls it sin. Sin separates us from God and fractures our relationship with one another. For anyone who thinks I'm okay and you're okay, the the Bible says that is not the case. Look around. Something... Sin has separated us from God. If you skip... He talks about the law in the next few verses. If you skip down to verse 9, Paul says... Yeah, the law's good. I'll tell you the best use of the law. The best use of the law is to, like, stop the mouth of the sinner. Like, stop deceiving yourself. Understanding this, he writes, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, let me unpack that. What he's saying is, people who are already saved and, and, and walking with the Lord and seeking to grow, they need to grow in grace and focusing so much on legalism is actually going to destroy them. It's not going to help them. The purpose of the law is to call to attention people whose lives are heading wrecked and dangerously out of control to call them back. Here's an example. Imagine an elite cyclist preparing for the Tour de France or whatever, right? And we insist that this person uh, snap training wheels onto his bicycle. You'd say, well, I, I mean, I, I see your point. Like, the training wheels are... But, man, with somebody who's going that fast and who's that good, I think I'd take my chances with their internal sense of balance. And I'm afraid those training wheels are actually going to cause more trouble. I think they're really going to tie him up. I think, you know, there's some tight turns. He may... I, I wouldn't do the training wheels, right? What are training wheels for? Training wheels are for someone with no sense of balance. They're for my kids, flopping all over the place. And he says, for them, those training wheels are going to restrain a little bit of the falls. They're going to protect them a little bit, long enough, as a guardian, as a custodian of sorts. And they're going to keep them, and they're going to point out, oh, I'm falling, oh, I'm falling, until we can get them that sense of balance. That's what he's saying. It's, the, the, the law is a wake-up call. And it's, it's not for the just. It's for the lawless and disobedience. And then he kind of... I don't know if he meant to exactly parallel the Ten Commandments. You remember the Ten Commandments? I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. No other gods but me, right? One God. Hmm? Don't make any idols. No graven image. No thank you. No, no projections on Empire State Buildings or anything that comes close to an idol, right? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Number four is remember the Sabbath day, right? You've got to take one day holy under the Lord. Honor mom and dad. Don't murder. Don't adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. That means lie. And don't covet. I don't know if he meant to, but he sort of goes in order through the, the Decalogue. He, the only one he leaves out is number 10, don't covet. But he gets to the end, he's like, and eh, whatever else. So it kind of is a catch-all. But here it is. Uh, the law was given for the uh, lawless and disobedient, right? For the ungodly, I am the Lord your God, and sinners, unholy and profane. God said, make, take one day and make it holy. He said, don't profane the name of the Lord. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that would be the opposite of honor your mom and dad, would be to punch them. 
right? For murderers. That one refers to a commandment, thou shalt not murder. Here are some ways to commit adultery. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Those are people who kidnap others with the intention to put them into slavery. Liars, perjurers. You shouldn't bear false witness. There it is. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God. Now, there's two ways to totally mess up these verses. One would be to look at these verses and go, some of these are really bad, other diseases are excusable. You know, that's what our culture tends to do. And I guarantee you're like me. Conveniently, we always seem to rank the sins worse if we don't struggle with them. You know what I mean? Like the ones we struggle with are, God can forgive, it's okay, we're all just human. The ones you struggle with are an abomination. Like your stuff is really wicked. My stuff, I think we can understand. That would be a terrible misunderstanding of the scriptures, right? None of the sins get the gold medal. They're all wicked. The other thing to do would be to look at this list and go, glad I'm not on that list. The Bible would say you're deceived. You're deceived. Self-deceived. To look at this list and say, well, that doesn't include me. Who does that not include? How many times have we gone over this at, as I've preached here at City on a Hill? If you just, just, just break any of these commandments, anybody told a, a white lie, a lie? You were a kid, it was a big thing, small thing, you've told a lie maybe recently? Put your hand up, I dare you. Go ahead, confession hour. You didn't know? Yeah, it's confession here. That's right, that's right. I'm looking around, I'm looking around. I appreciate those of you who put your hand up. I think we know who the liars are. There's a real irony in that. Thou shalt not steal, commandment number eight. Could have been a $20 bill out of your dad's wallet when you were a teenager. Could have been recently. Could have been something big. Could have been a life of crime. I'm interested. Thieves. Go ahead. Steal. Steal. Put your hand up. Put your hand up. Leave them up for two reasons. One, guard your wallet. Yeah, like I'm, 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 right? But two, some of you, I don't believe you at all. You're like, I'm not, I'm not a stealer. Dude, 30 seconds ago, you told me you were a liar. So I'm, I'm sorry. I don't believe your whole, um, this is a silly illustration. <laughs> Adultery. I'm just kidding. Here's the thing. Here, raise an eyebrow. Hey, listen. Listen. If you broke three commands a day, you remember telling me this? If you broke three commands a day and you live an average lifespan, you've broken 80,000 commands. That's your rap sheet before a holy God. My favorite is in Romans 3 where he says, the law was given to shut the mouth of the sinner. Do you know what infinity is? It's the lengths a human will go to justify his own sinfulness. We will just go on and on, but God, I had a, re- I mean, but God, but, I mean, but, but you know, I mean, but God, you made, I mean, but God, you're right. We will go on and on and on. Lord, I'm really, I'm actually not that bad of a guy. We could go to death row and find the wickedest criminal in the world. And what would he say? I'm really not that bad of a guy. I'm just misunderstood. I, you know, right? But the law was given to go, no, 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 you're kidding yourself. You're self-deceived. That's our situation before God. You know who's somebody who got this? G.K. Chesterton, British writer, dead. That was a weird bio. Uh, it kind of hit the major points. Uh, I love Chesterton. The London Times sends out an editorial to a bunch of noted authors with the question, they would like everyone to write back to the London Times an editorial piece. And many of the authors did. The best, though, was Chesterton's topic. They gave everybody the same topic. The problem with the world today. Send it out to everybody. Chesterton writes back, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. There's a guy who got it. There's a guy who got it. He's saying, before I blame everybody else, and I say the problem, see, the evil is in ISIS. The evil is out there. That is evil. I have no problem calling it evil. I think I'm, right? We're in a church. We can call stuff what it is. That is evil. Okay? And we can call it evil. As opposed to that's just malalignment. I mean, what does a secular humanist say? That's evil, right? Here's where a Christian goes a step further. There's evil in me. And to forgive the inexcusable in your spouse, to forgive the wickedness in your workplace, to forgive the inexcusable in someone else, that's, man, that's a level that Jesus brings that nobody had ever thought. To forgive the inexcusable in somebody else because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. 
To think that there's wickedness in me? That's got some teeth in it. That bites. That hurts. And to say humans can't save themselves, no amount of moral effort could erase the stench of sin from God's nostrils. No amount of sacrifice, no amount of right living. So much of religion is trying to get leverage on God. I know I did a lot of bad things, God, but I, if you'll get me out of this, I, whoo, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will give offering. How are you going to get leverage on a holy God? What sense does that make? Hey, God, thank you for saving me from an eternal wrath in hell. For that, I'm going to put an extra 20 in the plate. God, who owns everything and the plate, is like, for real? Oh, good, I was short. I was wondering how I was going to get lunch today. But man, if you will hook me up, that will really... Some people go so far as to say, God, if you'll save me, if you'll get me out of this, they're getting leverage on God. I will give you my life. What they don't realize is God says, if I want your life, I take it. I own you. How are you going to get leverage on God? It's hopeless. And that means exactly what it sounds like. In sin, we are bound to split hell wide open. We are actively under the wrath of God with helplessness and hopelessness to save ourselves. And in that sorry and broken and wicked and pitiful state, the only one who could rescue us was God himself. And God himself did. He rolled up his sleeves and he did for us what no one could do. He came as a little baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, and that little baby, no ordinary baby, he lived that sinless life. He lived the life that Adam and Eve and you and me should have lived. And he stretched out his arms on that Passover Friday and he bled and he died. And the active wrath of God being poured out on us, Jesus comes and says, pour it out on me. And he himself became a substitute, an atoning sacrifice for us and our salvation he lived the life we should have lived he died the death he could have died and now offers that standing before God to all who believe to you, to me to to, to everybody look at what Paul says in verse 15 I memorized this verse when I was 9 years old my kids will memorize it before they're 9 I hope you memorize it when you're 9 if you missed that, today is a good day too this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full adaptation. Sorry, I memorized it in King James. In Kentucky, it's what you do. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, whom I'm the foremost. If you didn't memorize that a long time ago, memorize it now. You ready? Christ Jesus, say it with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the message. If I could not find a more simple uh, summary of all of Christianity, Jesus Christ came into the world not to excuse sinners, not to crush and condemn the sinners, but to save sinners. And that message gives us hope. That's more than just imagine. That's hope. That deals with sin, and it offers us that solution. Which leads to the final point. Who's this message for? Okay, so you desperately need the right message. The right message is the gospel. And wrap up with this. Who, well... For whom is this message? For the grammar nerds, I want you to... Who is this message for? And the answer is, even for Saul. The message is even for Saul. Paul writes this great saying, the summary of the gospel. He gets excited and he goes, you know what? That makes me think about my own life. And he tells his testimony. Go back to 12. You know, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, Paul gives his testimony. Now, if you don't know anything about this guy, he used to be called Saul. And if you're not careful, oh, whoops, I think there we go. Oh, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, I just have to say this because I see it happening in a lot of churches. Often we look at Paul. And he gets sort of a free pass, I think. Because we look at passages like Philippians where it's like Paul had this awesome resume of faith. But here he's getting honest. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. The trouble is you read that and you go, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. But, it, you know, it, it doesn't sound that bad, right? You're good to go. <clears throat> However... <clears throat> The good doctor Luke, who wrote a two-part volume, he wrote a book, he wrote a gospel called Luke, and he wrote a second, a sequel called um, uh, Acts. And when Luke wrote both those things, he gives a great description of Saul before he became Paul in, uh, for example, Acts 9. It says, but Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what he thought Christians should be called, this, this weird cult, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted, his goal was complete extermination of the followers of the way. Here's why I brought up that verse. Uh, and I'll move, I'll, I'll move quickly here, but I think it's worth it. Saul, still breathing threats and murder. I never noticed it, but uh, until studying for this, that the Greek here is literally translated, breathing in threats and murder. Look, I've been angry. But I've never fueled my blood cells with the oxygen of hatred. Like, you get what I'm saying? He, violence and hatred was the air he breathed. You understand? I've, I've been angry, but I've never breathed threats. And, I've driven on the LIE, and I have never breathed threats. And A.T. Robinson has the best line. Threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath Saul breathed like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. That's Saul. That's our great hero of the faith. In, uh, he tells King Agrippa in Acts 26 that he would punish Christians and try to make them blaspheme. What do you do when you beat someone and assault them in order to coerce them to say something? That's called torture. This, this, this is who Paul is. A callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition. And Jerusalem wasn't enough. He was willing to go to Damascus. Do you realize Damascus was 150 miles from Jerusalem and he had hatred to fuel him the whole way? He didn't have to stop for gasoline and Cheetos. He, the guy is so mad. He is so angry. He got the letter, put it in his back pocket, goes 150 miles to Damascus. And when he, nobody sees, oh, it's Paul, come on in, write the book of Romans. You're scared to death of this guy. And uh, he was on his way to kill more Christians until you know what happened, right? Until, and Paul gets back to his testimony, until on the Damascus off-ramp, the untamable tiger Saul met the Lion of Judah, Jesus. Risen from the dead, right? And here, hey, why are you persecuting me? He's alive, and he starts to do the math. That means he really is the Messiah. That means he really is who he said he is, and he chooses Paul. Though formerly, back to that verse, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He doesn't mean I got mercy because I, I wasn't that bad. I just didn't know what I was doing. He's saying I received mercy, thankfully, and I needed it because I sinned. I acted ignorantly. It was stupid. Unbelief. These are sins. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Who is this message for? It's even for Paul. Can anybody here testify of this word? overflowed. When you think of the grace of God, does anybody know what it means when it says overflow? Isn't that good? There's no, listen, there's no conceivable accumulation of sin that grace cannot overflow. I believe that. Martin Luther, if you're ever going to quote Martin Luther a week after, two weeks after Reformation Sunday, uh, this is what he says about the overflowing grace of God. This is his commentary on that verse. The words of Martin Luther. I know, how can slow... I'm just kidding. In English. Just as the sun... Just as the sun... Talking about when God dumps out grace, doesn't he lose grace? Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light, and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand candlelights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has... So is Christ our Lord an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to turn the whole world into angels, it still would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. If God dumped the whole bucket of grace, there'd be more grace, not less. That's the gospel message, and that's the message that Timothy was to guard faithfully. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. He knows his need, and he says... He was given this grace for this reason. He received mercy for this reason. In me, as in the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's point is this. If you are a sinner here this morning, if you are a hopeless case and you know it, if you deserve to split hell wide open and you have no justification for your sins, if that's you, what he's saying is you are not disqualified from Christianity. You are the leading candidate for grace this morning. 
you're exactly who he wants. Jesus was here on earth. He said, I didn't come to call the, the, the healthy. They don't need a doctor. I'm here for the sick. And for those who will admit that, you too can be a trophy of his grace. I'll put it this way. Being a sinner does not disqualify you from following Jesus. It's a prerequisite. In that sense, Jesus is sort of, Jesus is for losers. Jesus is for those who need the rescuing. And Paul says, and I've been rescued that I could be a trophy of his grace. A trophy of his grace. What's a trophy? Any of you got a trophy laying around your house? You got it. You know what I'm talking about. You don't know why it's there. It's a little rusty, but it's still there. 1994, Spelling Bee Champion, Hicksville, Long Island. Yeah, you did that. You're the man. You're the woman. Definitely, you're the woman. I don't know why I'm considered the Spelling Bee Champion. You got this. A trophy is a physical object, right? I mean, the arm is broken, but it's bowling. You were there, right? You have a fantasy football trophy that shows you've wasted countless hours of your life. You can never get them back. What is a trophy? A trophy is a physical object with one point to glorify the one who earned it. A trophy sits there day after day, quietly, always, faithfully pointing. I, let me tell you about the one who earned it. This is, look, I, I am here to give glory. to. The, I am a physical manifestation to point glory to the one who earned it. That's what Paul says. That's my life. I'm here, day after day. Put me in prison. I am a trophy that points to the one who earned me. I'm going to be forever with God. And it's not because of anything I did. It's what he did. That's why boasting is ridiculous. That's why no trophy will ever be like, yeah, I did this. I won this spelling bee. Trophy, you didn't do anything. It's the one who earned it. So what's left to do? I mean, are you telling me, Tom, like what is left to do? If, if, if having the right doctrine matters so much, the right doctrine is a gospel and it's available for anybody, what am I supposed to do? Just like live a life every day of like pointing glory to God and like existing in praise to him? Yup. Yup. Well, so, I mean, if, all, if, that's, if that's my only point, then I would leave here and I would like glorify God and just enjoy him. Yup. And that's how Paul ends. He's like, I'm just going to write a praise song real quick. I'm so blown away by the gospel, I would just like to write the following song. To the king of the ages, I don't know how he did it, but he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And he slams his pen down, and he picks it up, and he writes, amen, slams it down. Yeah. That's it. He says, that's my life. I'm here to be a trophy of his grace. There's no room for boasting in Christianity. There's no room for... For, for paying God back for what he did. There's, there's, well, I, you know, I'm better than this person. I'm better than, we're, we, we are the rescued ones. And the rest of our life is spent to give this glory and honor to him. Let's pray. As you bow your head and, and close your eyes, I want to talk specifically to two groups. If you're a Christian, glorify him, enjoy him forever. You are a trophy of his grace. I want the good news of the gospel this morning to, to, to penetrate your heart, to nourish you all week long like good food. I want you to be thirsty for God and I want the word of God to fill you up like a cool drink of water. If you are not yet a believer, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you're the second group I want to talk to. If you are not yet a believer, if you've never made that transfer of trust, I told you at the beginning, I'll say it again, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I want you to keep coming here. Keep getting your questions answered. You've got questions? Come back. Come back Wednesday. Come Learn. Meet some people. But what if today is that day where you would say, I, I feel the conviction in my life. I feel this thing that like I'm not okay before God and I want to be. Today could be that day where you say, I need to receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I need to be saved. City on a Hill has, this church has thoughtfully prepared for you. And in some sense, you could say they expect that to happen. They expect it. Because right after the service, there is a group of people. They're on your right, my left, all the way to the end. There by those windows. And they want to pray with you. And they can help you take the first steps that you need in receiving Jesus. Beginning that lifestyle of discipleship. Jesus is the Lord of your life. It takes a, a lifetime, certainly, but it can begin with a simple step. An act of faith. And they can lead you in that help you in that. They, that this is what they want. They're, wi they're willing. So for believers, that this would nourish you, quench your thirst this week. And for those who are not yet believers, there's an opportunity immediately following this service. I would run over there if I were you.
receive prayer, to get some counsel, to learn those next steps. I want to clearly explain it. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that the purpose of all this is love. We're going to love people better because we know you more. We have this good doctrine that works itself out in our minds. We thank you that the little children over in Kidmo, my kids, are in fact learning all about your love. And in a world of hate and violence, they're going to shine like stars. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for empowering her and for granting to City on a Hill godly leaders who are caring and pastoring and reminding of us of the power of prayer. We love you. We thank you that ultimately you are the leader of this church because you're the leader of every church, Jesus. And we give you praise. You deserve it. Glory, the King, immortal, invisible, the living God. We bring you honor and glory, Jesus. Turn our attention now, as is our custom, to the Lord's table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Bible says, in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For Christians, the word nourishes us and certainly this physical and tangible act reminds us of what it means to be a trophy of His grace. We come at His invitation, not because we earned it, not because we know how to live all fancy and right and religiously good, but we come as the rescued ones, celebrating our great rescue, celebrating above all our rescuer. For the things have been prepared here, there'll be some ushers moving around and getting us orderly in an orderly way to the table. If you're not a believer, again, I would say this, you don't need the symbols of Christ. You need Christ. You need to receive Him, the real thing, the thing to which these symbols point. That's all. I'll say it again. you got to go over here to this prayer area right after the service. You shouldn't wait. You can't play around with that. The things are uh, prepared. As I said, the ushers know what to do. And so I'll leave it in their hands to get us reverently to the table. Just follow their lead. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.